Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Confronted with a series of racially charged incidents, a young black man must overcome rage, alienation, and hopelessness in order to find his own humanity. The young black man, simply identified as man, must resolve the personal meaning of his blackness when his white boss orders him to commit fraud to benefit the corporation. The film is called The Sleeping Negro, and we're joined today by the director and writer of the film, as well as producer and... I'm a lot of things. We'll get into all of that. And that would be Skinner Meyer. Skinner, welcome to Film School Radio. Oh, thank, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I know that you've done a number of films, mm-hmm. short films and, and features. Mm-hmm. What was the inspiration for this particular film? There was a moment, I would say a year, 2018, that I almost sold the TV show with one of my writing partners. Um, it was something we were hired to do. And we got pretty far in the process and uh, it fell apart. And I just realized like at that moment, I was like, maybe I'm chasing this Hollywood thing and I'm not being true to who I was when I began this journey of trying to make films. Because I was an actor way before I became a filmmaker. I did off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, lots of commercials and thought I was going to be like the next, you know, Denzel Washington, like every young black actor coming up in the early aughts. And so um, I really started to think about my positionality, not only as a black person in America, but also just being a black artist pursuing filmmaking and what that felt like. And I got, you know, there's a lot of frustrations, a lot of anger, and I really wanted to, you know, one, make a feature to exercise those demons, two, I had made all these shorts, some had won lots of awards, and I felt like there was a stall in my ability to like get support for other projects. And I was like, maybe if I make a feature, that opens some doors. And so all that was like the catalyst in terms of trying to get this film off the ground. And then there was another movie called The Man Who Sleeps by Georges Perec, who he's French based on a novel by the same name. And I watched that movie and it was like, oh my God, you can make these crazy art house films. And um, people loved that film. And I was like, well, I want to do something similar, talk about race and put myself in it because I just didn't have a lot of money to cast a lot of actors. I was like, I'll shoot around LA. I'll steal some locations. We're just going to get this done. And that's kind of how it kind of came about, like in the beginning. I know the sort of the backstory. You had mm-hmm. a couple of thousand dollars. I mean, just to basically, in, in, in film terms, that's that's a half a day of shooting or yeah. whatever. It's not a whole lot. Yeah. But I, what I what I liked about the backstory, we'll, we'll get into the story itself, but the backstory is uh, just how uh, determined you were and how resourceful you must have been in order to kind of not only start the project, but also to enlist the people that you got involved in the project. Uh, just kind of curious as a, as someone who's always curious about filmmaking, mm-hmm. um, what was that like for you? I mean, how did that, how did Ooh, that sort of it was It was rough. So there was a buddy of mine in Glendale, Kevin Rettig, who um, he's kind of supported me over the past few films. He's given me some money. He's a priest. And he read the script and he was like, oh, I really, this is great. I want to support you. He's like, let's have dinner. And this is pre-pandemic because we made the movie before the pandemic started. And he gave me an envelope uh, full of like $2,000 in cash. And I said, okay, cool. Well, one of my buddies who was kind of helping me produce this, uh, Dan, he was like, well, you know, we could shoot a teaser and then try to attract actors and more investors that way. 
And I was like, well, maybe we just can start production and I'll just tell everybody. I'll make a big announcement. Hey, I'm in production, my first feature, but not tell people, you know, obviously, like it's two grand. We're going to shoot MOS. We're only going to shoot on the weekends. We're going to, you know. Um, so we shot a lot of B-roll. I think we shot the opening of the movie, actually, that first weekend, because it was just me and there was no dialogue. So we didn't have a sound person. And it was just my camera person, my first AC, me, Dan, and then like a dolly and a camera and a couple of rolls of film. And so we started shooting that way. As I was shooting, I was like, okay, I have to raise more money, but I need to get cast. So at the same time of trying to get people to support me, I was also reaching out to friends who were actors and saying, hey, this is a script I'm working on. We're going to piecemeal it together. I only need you for a day. Would you be interested? And that's kind of how I got Julie, who we used to wait tables together in New York City over 20 years ago <laughs> before she started her acting career. And then, let's see, uh, David Fumero, I met him in New York City when, when I was like 18, 19. He was on One Life to Live for 13 years as Christian Vega. And we've been friends ever since. So he's always supported me and he's always been in a lot of my projects. And then Nikon, um, I met, well, I saw him in Thunder Road, Jim Cummings' film, because Jim came to... Actually, the class I was teaching in L.A. for Indiana University at Raleigh Studios, Jim brought Thunder Road to my class so we could have a test screening before it went to South by Southwest. And Natalie Metzger and, and um, Matt Miller came and did a Q&A. And so I saw Nikon in that movie that night. And I was like, oh, man, this guy's great. Reached out to him on his DMs and Instagram. We got met up for beers and then we became really tight. Right on, I had met at a party, you know, four years prior in L.A. at Crossroads Restaurant in um uh, i think in melrose, melrose and she was like i love this i want to do it and then tunde um i emailed his you know instagram dms and he got back to me three weeks later and was like oh i just sent it to my agent so that's how i got the cast but no one knew i didn't have any money so one of my producers john campbell came on board he put some money in got a buddy of his to put some money in and then when my old acting manager got a friend of his to give me some money we were at uh where were we the roosevelt hotel having drinks we went to see a band and we kind of got a little buzzed and she was like how much do you need i was like need five thousand dollars she wrote me a check right there in the bar i was like who carries checkbooks but um i was so grateful and then i put my own i put some of my own money in it over the course of a year you know i did a super bowl commercial as an actor and i used that money to help me finish the movie that's kind of how we i piecemealed it and we shot over three months on the weekends and about eight and a half days total in that three month window. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Because again, there's so many uh, of the filmmakers that I've had on the show, it's, it is always a struggle. I don't, even mm -hmm. if established filmmakers who've made three or four features always struggle with finding money, especially if it's, if there are filmmakers who are determined to make their movie yeah, showcasing what they want to showcase. And the other reason I wanted you to talk about it was this is a beautiful look. Oh, it, it's just shot really well. Everything about it, all the technical stuff is really well done. And so I just, for people who see the, the sleeping Negro, mm. um, I want them to understand that, you know, or for a lot and there's just so many movies out there where it's your, the ingenuity, it's the resourcefulness mm -hmm. and the determination a passion that you had to make this film. And you see, you see it in the film. And I just, I, I really appreciate that story. And I appreciate what filmmakers have to do in order to, to realize what they want to do. And yeah, I, I will. And I thank you for that. And I will say we shot super 16 because I only shoot on film. That's my whole personal thing. 
And we mainly shot, I would say 90% of the movie was one take. We rehearsed a whole bunch because I only had 25 rolls of film. You, 400 foot roll of Super 16, you get about 11 minutes of shooting time. Yeah, 10 minutes, depending on how it's loaded. And I had 25 rolls total. There was a couple of scenes we had to shoot more than one take because we had some technical issues. But for the most part, it was like, okay, we got it. Let's move on. We don't have time. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So um, some locations gave us literally like 30 minutes to shoot in. There was a couple of things, scenes that got cut, but we were like in a bowling alley that was in there. We were in a bar. We were at the Bob's Big Boy where they shot Heat. Um, and it was literally like, okay, we can only, we only have like this window. So yeah, I would say 85% of the movie was like a one, one take, all the setups. Hey, that's great to hear. Yeah. You're in the apartment. There's a fair amount shot in there, a fair amount outside. It's always mm -hmm. a challenge. For oh a lot of reasons, you know? Yeah. We got chased out of a few places, downtown LA by security guards. And we just kept circling back, circling back like the grand city market or grand, yeah. I forgot, grand central market. Central. Uh, we got chased out three times and my dp and i were like okay we'll just chill for an hour and then we'll do, we'll do it again till we get what we feel like we need so that's how we got all those shots you know well let's talk about man and his and his friends the film is a series of vignettes and there are people that are important in his life yeah. or at least it feels like they yeah. were or they are now yeah. there's mm -hmm. a variations on that that's right and then there are so you set up a, an interesting dynamic from the very beginning of mm -hmm. the of him floating over his bed. Yeah. And sort of that 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 visual is just so compelling and, and it really kind of pulls you into what is happening, what is going on here. And I also think it introduces a little bit of a, a sci fi mm -hmm. slash um, neorealism. There's a certain vibe that it all for me, at least it gave me. Yeah of so and what it, i think for me what it does also is it allows me to understand that this story may go anywhere i'm yeah. not going to be locked yeah. into any particular um kind of you know motif if you will or or, yeah. or film so is that what 100 correct i mean i that first image was created i wanted to set the tone from the jump i love surrealism uh, i really like sci-fi um i love lewis manuel you know Tarkovsky, Tarkovsky, all the filmmakers from the LA Rebellion. Um, and I really wanted to have something that was kind of visceral, but kept the audience on their toes so they wouldn't know what like what was going to happen. And hopefully that would keep them in locked into the story, you know. Um, and all the characters are like it's like part essay film, part chamber drama. I come from a theater background, so I actually thought about um, you know, making it into a play at one point because a lot of the scenes are like between 10 to 15 pages long. But yeah, that, you're absolutely on the mark. I mean, I really wanted to kind of set the tone with the opening and then sprinkle stuff in that um, would come back later in the movie, but also would be like, well, what, what, is, what is this? Like, where is this going to go? And also try to have rage that wasn't overt and screaming and yelling, but was very subtle because that's how I deal with it. Like, I'm constantly angry and frustrated and full of rage, but I'm not walking around, you know, punching people. Um, there's other ways I'm, I try to deal with it. And so I wanted to kind of have that in the film through the character, if that makes sense. And rage and the place of the African-American in American society, yeah. the history. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that I just truly loved about the film is the archival footage, the sort of splicing in different elements yeah. into the film. It forces, and again, I'm speaking, I'll 
not revealing too much here as a, a, a white man who mm-hmm. has been around for a while and uh, to sort of, I don't think you can do it often enough to yeah. essentially present the real history of America in the, right. in the context of a story mm-hmm. about a black man in American society. I, I think it's, and you do it so effectively. Uh, I just, this is the part of our conversation where it's a little bit awkward for me. I, I want to yeah. make sure you, I want to make sure I'm on the right track here and oh, yeah 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 yeah. Not, yeah you're, you're absolutely right i mean yeah. obviously you know we have a problem in this country where we don't teach the true history and every time we try to then um white people's feelings get in the way and they want to like stop it right so but i think the truth is getting out in a way where it's going to be unstoppable i mean globally people understand not not only american history but just how colonialism the world over has kind of screwed us uh, as humans and how capitalism has just destroyed the earth, destroyed us, um, this pandemic's exposed all that. And I think we just have to keep talking about it because, you know, as a film professor, a lot of my students, I teach at CU Boulder, I'm currently in Colorado. I used to live in Los Angeles where I taught at Loyola Marymount University for six years. And I went to film school at USC for a bit. You know, a lot of students will say, oh, I love movies because of escapism. And to me, that's one of the big problems is that we cannot, we don't know how to face our problems and our issues without trying to escape from them. And that's, that is probably going to be our downfall. You know, if we can't face the past and really understand it and be truthful about it, how can we move forward to a future? I mean, I think America as a country holds a lot of potential, right? When you look at the constitution and basically the constitution was rooted on equality for white, rich male landowners. I mean, slaves were property, so they were not thought about as humans when the constitution was written, right? So the, the foundation of this country was made for white male landowners and to, to try to create a situation where they could maintain that wealth and, and that power. Um, so they massacred all, you know, genocide all the Native Americans. They brought Africans over to work the land. You know, the Africans were the capital. That was the, they were the money, so to speak, that, um, that, that brought riches to these white families. And so until we address that in a truthful way, and just be honest about it. You know, I think uh, we're going to continue to have uh, negative consequences for not being honest with ourselves about where we're at, what we've done in the world, what we, you know, what we stand for. It's like doublespeak. You know, we say that we're for equality and justice and freedom and democracy, but those are just terms. I mean, that doesn't mean anything because like James Baldwin has said throughout his life, I'm just looking at the evidence. Like, I don't know if this person is racist, but I'm looking at their actions and what they've done and what the systems and institutions have have done. And I'm, I'm just speaking from the evidence. And I think there's enough evidence in this country that we try to sweep under the rug to show like we're, we are not about equality, justice, freedom and democracy. I mean, if, if that is what we're spreading around the world, then I know a lot of countries probably don't want it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, so I think we just have to be honest about that. And I think art is one way that we can talk about those things. Um, obviously, not everyone's going to want to hear it. You know, you have film festivals may not want to program it. You have distributors who may not want to buy it. But I think if more people were just truthful in what their convictions were, maybe we could get there in the future. Um, you know, the potential that we do hold as a country. But right now, we are falling way short of that potential, have been. And um, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any concrete solutions, you know. But we do need to kind of hit the restart button. In so many ways, you know, in this country. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Skinner Myers. He is the director, writer, producer, as well as the 
star of the film, The Sleeping Negro. And just to your point, and I think it's so important, I, I refer to it as the acknowledgement project. <laughs> until oh. we acknowledge mm -hmm. it, until we are all in agreement that 400 years ago, Africans were brought to this country to essentially be our, the as you described it, currency mm -hmm. by which we were able to build an industry that was powerful enough to make put us on the world stage, yep. to, pre, to be able to present ourselves as a, an industrial power, till yes, we're sir. willing to acknowledge that that's what happened. Yeah. You're right. And, and that's the other thing, you know, we're seeing now the reaction to the the critical race theory and, mm -hmm. and this complete his, hysteria, this overreaction yeah. to what I just described, yeah, describing right. what we yeah. actually, what actually happened. Yeah. And so when people talk about institutional racism, when they talk about endemic racism mm -hmm. and you just, you talk about it, your characters talk about it in the film, mm -hmm. prison system, the educational system, mm -hmm. the real estate industry oh yeah so but but when you see these reactions and people say well what is racism really and the these people I, and then i think that's the beauty of what you're talking about in the film what we see in the film but also what we're seeing in our politics which is those people are now coming out of the shadows to say mm -hmm. we want to hold on to this and and the other thing is the other part of this is that when these guys talk about when these con so-called conservatives talk about them being originalists Mm -hmm. Right. They mm -hmm. talk about originalism when they talk about the Constitution. Yeah, that's exactly what you just said is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Original Constitution is a racist document. Uh, yeah, it's a racist yeah. document. So when yep. they talk about we want to go back to the we weren't we're originalist. That's what they that they're telling you. They're telling mm -hmm. us that they're essentially institutional racists. Of course. I mean, if you really break it down, American patriotism is hate speech. Um, because it's predicated on the deaths of Native Americans and the subjugation and enslavement of black body, black people, uh, slaves, you know, and that's where the, that's where America, as we know it currently has formulated from those things. Right. So if you, if one is like, oh, I, you know, I believe in the, this American experiment and you want to be an originalist and all that. I mean, to me, that's hate speech because it's, so, it, it, it's only successful on the subjugation of these other groups. And um, that all has to change. So basically, America, as we know it, would have to cease to exist. It would have to be reborn in a way that addresses how this old, this current version was started, right? You can't just slaughter 150 million souls and uh, Native American souls and then just subjugate millions and millions of slaves and be like, well, that was a long time ago when the institutions that we all have to interact with basically were created and successful off that death and subjugation. Yeah. Um, for example, quick example, Aetna health insurance. I mean, Aetna health insurance started by enslaving property, which were slaves. That's how they got money. And we, Aetna still a billion dollar company today. I mean, the New York like, stock exchange was, was yeah. set up in order to facilitate the slave trade. That's right. We so, didn't have a banking system. And well, uh, the bare bones of a banking system until we began the enterprise of slavery, right? Yeah, so we have to really look at all those institutions yeah. uh, in an honest way. And I don't know, I just feel like it obviously is an uphill battle. Um, I mean, black people just in general, in terms of the population numbers, I think we're like 12 or 30% of the American population. And then since 
you know, we have a lot of um, immigrants coming over and a lot of um, in the past 100 or 200 years. So it obviously it's very complicated, but at the same time, it's not at the same, you know, in my opinion. So yeah, all those things have to be addressed in order for us to kind of reach this potential. And I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime. I don't know if it's going to happen in my kid's lifetime, but I do think I have to have hope that uh, things are changing a little bit. I mean, you look at the days of like James Baldwin, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, George Jackson, Asala Shakur, you read their works and what they were struggling with and what they were dealing with, cops and politicians. And I mean, it's like the same thing kind of right now, you know? And just because um, there's like wealthy black people or wealthy Native Americans, I mean, white supremacy like kind of plays both sides. It's going to pick and choose um, people to be successful and be like, hey, you can be like that. Just like, don't worry about the status quo. Like, just go after that money. But I think also, too, like when elites or white people or whoever in power start to be treated like they're black, that's when things start to change. So I think the pandemic has created a situation where not everyone, but a lot of non-black people are starting to be in positions where they're like, oh, I don't like how this feels. Oh, I, don't, I can't get health insurance. I can't get health care. I lost my job. I'm losing my house. Like things have to change. But like it takes a substitution almost in a way subconsciously for them to substitute. It's almost like lynching. And it's like some people have to substitute their children's bodies for a black body that's hanging in the tree to, to feel empathy. And that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, we just have, I mean, plus we're human. So <laughs> we're like very uh, contradictory and just like selfish and kind of crazy. <laughs> so I, it's it's just like, it's a mess. It's a mess. But yeah, um, yeah we, we got to deal with it, man, because I mean, freaking capitalism is just destroying the earth, period. And the earth doesn't need us, right? I mean, the earth probably would... The Earth would flourish without human species. We know this. <laughs> it did. It did for a long, did for, for, a, for a couple of hundred million years. It did yeah. okay before we got here. Exactly. I mean, like we need the Earth, right? It doesn't need <laughs> us. It's kind of so. I mean, the way capitalism is going, it's like there's not going to be anything else to extract from the planet. I mean, at some point, and you're willing to let 800,000 Americans die without, you know, having a, a, a true infrastructure to deal with this COVID situation. I mean, it's just like. When people start to look at that number and, and not blink, that's scary. Yeah. We don't have a public health system. Mm -mm, not at all. And we used to. There was some version of that that at least was mm -hmm. functional. Uh, mm -hmm. But over the last, 50, 10, last 20 or 30 years or since Reagan, we've mm -hmm. dismantled all of these public institutions yep. to the point where they're either discredited or ineffective. And public yeah. health was a big one that yep. we just allowed to go under. I mean, you would think we're almost like almost two years into the pandemic in this country, you know, and like, why don't we have free health care at this point? Right. I mean, people are going to go bankrupt just on their medical bills right? through this pandemic, or a lot of people are going to die because they can't just get into the hospital because it's so packed, you know, um, break a leg or have a heart attack. Like maybe you don't get that surgery. Maybe you don't get that help and you die. Um, it's really, I don't know. It's just, just so many things that at some point, all the wills are going to fall off. At some point, it's all yeah. it's all going to come crumbling down. It, it's just unsustainable the path yeah. I think, that we're on in so many ways. Um, I don't know what's going to look like. I don't know what's going to happen in my lifetime, but it's accelerating, in my opinion. You know? Yeah, I think I agree with you. Yeah. I had uh, C.J. Hunt on um, a few mm -hmm. months ago to talk about uh, neutral ground, and Rachel Boynton was on for her documentary about it's called Civil War, mm -hmm. and those two. My conversation with C.J. was pretty honest and and he made the point so did she that the civil war ended the institution of slavery but white supremacy thrived oh yeah after it that's mm -hmm. that's been a constant 
you know, oh, yeah. the the, yeah. the whorish nature, the the I'll say this in quotes, which you won't be able to hear, yeah. but the unappealing, the the repulsiveness of slavery was done away with. But the institutions that were essentially that grew up around it and continue to flourish after the Civil War and oh, beyond yeah. into our day. So 10%. And I really want people to understand the film openly is talking about these things in yeah. ways that are obviously more um, rooted in theater and film and, mm -hmm. and it's the visual medium of film, but but also make these points. And I think that's, that's yeah. why it's important for us to talk about it. Before I let you go, I do want to talk about your cast. You mentioned the people in it. And I just thought everybody in the film was effective and and i thought you were able with the a limited amount of time they're on screen they established this kind of uh, pattern with with your character man and then but also are able to articulate i think what you were trying to articulate in yeah. the film is it yeah I, I thought so too i was really thankful for my cast they all make a living as actors i don't i'm a full-time film professor and I, I, I'm a background as an actor, so I, I know how to act, I think. <laughs> and I, I have training that I can rely on, but I did lean on them heavily. We did lots of rehearsal. Each actor, we rehearsed about uh, two months each. I was able, since we shot on the weekends, I was able to kind of do individual rehearsals for each scene before we shot, which helped me because I was like, man, I haven't acted in a long time. Like, I need you guys to tell me if I'm sucking. You know what I'm saying? Like, it needs to feel <laughs> authentic and real. But they, they all carried me, and I really, I'm really thankful for that because... Um, Without them, I would have made some probably awful choices because there was the things that changed based on the rehearsals that we had. Um, but like I said, they all are great actors and artists and they, and they work a lot. That's why they work a lot. Well, I think you have a terrific presence in the film. I, I'm, I'm truly, I, I thought you were good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you were good at what you did. And uh, I just, I really appreciate the film on a lot of levels, but the fact that you're able to get so much out of uh, the visual part of the story. There's a scene, I think, I don't well, go back to, I think it's when your fiance is in your apartment. Were you changing lenses around? On the, because it looks almost oh. like a fisheye. Yeah, from, yeah. Um, let's see. I think for that scene we shot on, I think it was a nine millimeter lens. And so what we did, I just pushed the, I got the camera closer and closer and closer and closer. Yeah. And we fought, you know, so yeah. with one lens, but we just, I wanted to kind of distort everyone's face towards the end. Yes. So I got the camera, like, I mean, when you shoot on those wide angle lenses, I had a, I had the fortunate uh, opportunity to work with Chivo, Emmanuel Lebeski on a really side, like a small side. It wasn't even a movie. It was like a side project, a test shoot or something. This is probably like three years ago, four years ago, probably four years ago. Yeah. Way before the, my daughter was born four years ago in L, in California. He's a really sweet man. Really nice. We, I got to spend a couple hours with him and actually had some good conversation as he's shooting me. And we talked about his approach to filmmaking and we talked about wide angle lenses and the Revenant and all that. And so um, I really wanted to try something like that with this film. And I really loved how it came out, but I will say you got to get really close on a wide angle lens like this. <laughs> and you hear the sound of the camera, you know, like rolling. And the, sometimes the actors are not used to it, right? Because they're like, whoa, like, why is the camera so close? I'm like, trust me, I know it's here, but it looks good. <laughs> but you got to get that close, though, because, you know, so sort of just to distort the image. But yeah, we shot on, I think the widest angle I had was a six millimeter lens uh, for some of the B-roll shots. Um, 
I mean, man, we shot. I mean, we stole the subway shots. I was in, I had a little Kia Soul with a sunroof. So all the downtown sky shots is literally like my cameraman is standing in my car and he's like, okay, you gotta drive slow, man, slower. And I'm like going really slow. And he's like, okay, we gotta go back around. I don't think I got it. So like, I just, just had to use what we had, you know, I mean, I'm glad people, some people, you know, it's one of those movies, whether you love it or you hate it. And that's fine by me. It's, it's cold or hot. I don't want neutrality, but, um, those shots were hard to get and stressful. Because we were evading cops. I think at one shot downtown, there was a big shoot, right? Big production, craft services, all these vans. So I told my crew, I said, let's just shoot close to this. So if anyone asks, we're like, oh, we're just like B, B camera, B unit for this TV show. And that's what we did. I think Nicholas Winding Refn was shooting Too Old to Die Young. And we just kind of shot close to their crew to pretend like we were part of it. So no one would question why we didn't have permits or anything, you know? God, we did stuff like that. For filmmakers listening to Film School Radio, this is exactly the kind of thing that when you, it's kind of the, the run and gun style that you're talking yeah. about, also being quick on your feet. Like this, yeah, this right. is an opportunity. Let's take advantage of it. And that's on right. the limited amount of film stock that you had, all of these things must have been very stressful. It was so stressful. <laughs> I got told the first day in downtown LA, I couldn't get out for a week. Oh man, it's horrible. It was really bad. Well, 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 I, 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 you said you're, a full-time professor. I hope that you will continue to pursue these sorts of projects and continue yeah, oh, to do. That. Yeah, I got some stuff in the works. We'll see Good. what happens this year with the pandemic, but I, I got stuff written. Just trying to get some money and get some more things shot. Yeah, that's sure. fantastic. Well, uh, again, as I said, uh, the the film is received. I think it's a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I, I know that's sort of a mixed bag for filmmakers to be told that. In terms, I mean, yeah. I, if people have a love hate relationship with with the Rotten Tomatoes, but I. I just want to let people know it, it has received a tremendous amount of, uh, of attention and accolade yeah. and um, well-deserved. So thank you. Thank so you. Much, Mike. Thank you. The yeah. film again is called The Sleeping Negro, and we've been talking with the lead actor, director, writer, producer, everything you would want <laughs> in, a, in a filmmaker is, uh, <laughs> is embodied by Skinner Myers. And I want to thank you so very much for spending some time with us of course. on thank Film School Radio. Me. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is great. So much fun. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.